now still in love with the X, the podcast for anyone who has ever been to Exeter University. Stand by for your hosts, Alex Borchardt, and first, Tony Hall, and episode four, with special guest Andy Sinclair. Warehouse and Boxes, Northcott Theatre. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, whatever time it is, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Still in Love with the X. I'm Tony Horn in Lancashire, England. In Devon, Alex Borchardt, my friend, and also our special guest. So, we will not have guests on a regular basis, but we will from time to time. Today, a special guest that, frankly, passed through many of our lives without us necessarily knowing who he was, and somebody that first appeared on the radar, under the radar, because he was on a taped University Radio Extra program, so that meant that I and Alex first encountered him by playing out his tape after we had finished a late night show on the university radio station. And that tape show went out for years and years and years. And I think there were only about 10 of them, but they went out every single week. Here's our guest, Andy Sinclair. Hello there. <laughs> I had no idea my fame lasted so long after I left the uni. Well, the thing is, you were in the anecdotes of University Radio Exeter associated, of course, with with Dave Hills, who stayed on the radio station, but of course went into Exeter life. Um, and there you were, you were this voice. And I, I think I looked up to you in a strange kind of way, but I, I didn't know who you were. And... I think it's definitely true that you were in the shadows of people's lives, as we will explain. But let's just roll back. When were you at Exeter University? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the you know, the, the name of the podcast is Still in Love with the X. And to a certain extent, I guess I'm more so than you are. Because, as you said, you said I'm in Devon. I'm actually in Exeter. I'm still there. I came to Exeter for the uni in 1985 which makes me extraordinarily ancient by anybody's reckoning. So I was there from 85 to 88 doing English literature, a very classic bookish sort of course. And then as you touched on, I think it was in the second half of the first year, for reasons that I, I wanted to do it, was I wasn't a very confident sort of person. So I thought, I'll have a go at the university radio station. And if I can talk in front of what I imagined at that point to be thousands of people, actually more like dozens, that's going to be good for my confidence. And, and there it went on from there. And yeah, you mentioned that the, the late night programs that I recorded with Dave Hills, and they were done as live, basically, onto quarter inch tape, you'll have to add a section to the podcast to explain what that is. Um, and I think the reels of tape were as full <laughs> as they possibly could be, as full as they could be. And they were running, at, I think, an inch and a quarter per second, uh, or something of that nature. To, to spin out the, the massive runtime of them them overnight. And and that's that's how I that's when I arrived in Exeter and I left in nineteen eighty eight. As you say, then you arrived at Exeter University and you didn't know who I was, but I was still there. I was in Exeter and I was still broadcasting. I was still doing stuff associated with that. One of the narratives of the university radio station is in fact that the history, legacy of the place is passed on verbally. And if you are in the past, you automatically become legendary. And, you know, I was a naive, <laughs> I don't even know, 18, 19-year-old, <laughs> and I would hear stories of people like Kevin Howlett, who went on to be on Radio 1 as a producer, John Bache, who had suddenly got some summer relief cover work at the radio station in Reading, 210, and other such people. And so, therefore, anybody that had moved on and gone on to any kind of radio was therefore a legend. And Andy Sinclair 
had suddenly found himself on Devon Air. And uh, Andy, I mean, one of the strange things is that I can remember hearing you and thinking that you were about 10 years older than me because that's how long I thought it took to get onto a professional radio station. But in fact, as you've just outlined there, you were probably just a couple of years ahead of me. And I think probably now if we if we look back at Exeter without a career plan, we just like sort of fall into these things. But you were on the university radio station by and by the way, I thought you were pretty decent broadcaster, but you your time at university radio Exeter ends and you are on Devon Air, the local station. How did that happen? I suppose, yeah, when you mentioned it, you, you thought that I sounded perhaps a lot older than you and, and that it took a certain amount of time to get into broadcasting. So perhaps out of our cohort, or my cohort, the, the class of 85 to 88 on university radio, perhaps I was one of the quickest to get into broadcast radio, not with the BBC, not nationally, like some of them went on to and, and, and still remain. Um, the reason it happened was because while I was still at university, to make extra money, beer money, by one way or another, I hooked up with a, a local mobile DJ, the legend that is Tim Arnold uh, and the Tim Arnold Roadshow. So while I was still at university, just to, just to make extra money to you know to buy beer and you know pizzas and things like that, I was out of a weekend, as you do with a mobile disco, doing weddings in god awful village halls in the middle of nowhere in the pitch black, uh, roadieing stuff like that and then eventually um, it got to the point where I was trusted enough quite quickly uh, through Tim to start going out with a kit on my own and, and, and doing those sort of those sort of classic mobile discos and then, and then just to explain all of it was done on with vinyl seven inch singles and albums as well on a, 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 a Citronic Thames 2 belt driven turntable console uh, and mountains of gear. But Tim also had a show on the local radio station, had done for ages. That was my in. So a lot of people who, who want to get into the radio industry don't necessarily have that. I, I had a little bit of an in there. So, you know, that's, that's how I came to fetch up on Devonair. And to be fair, I was only there for a couple of years. I did a bit of everything, including a stint in the newsroom as well, reporting and so forth. Uh, but most of it, as was the case with local radio at the time, you probably go back far enough to remember this tony is that it actually had live real live people actual people speaking into a microphone and playing music 24 <laughs> 7 yeah it's curious because i mean one of the things and alex and i we talked about this in previous episodes we don't want to have university radio extra as the narrative that runs through this but there is something in the anecdotal history coaching culture of the university radio station which means that when you arrive people tell you stories about people from the past and i was told of this guy andy sinclair and interestingly you know we talked about dave hills in the previous episode and dave hills remained a constant in the he still DJ'd, I hate that phrase, on the station. But Andy Sinclair didn't. And yet Andy Sinclair turned up on the local radio station. Now, as a 14, 15, 16-year-old, I messed around in my bedroom, and I, I loved radio. I wanted to be on the radio. And there you were, somebody who... In a strange kind of way, you were on the university radio station in this bizarre taped thing that went out overnight for years and years, but you were also on a radio show, which I was aware of but never listened to, on Devon Air, the local commercial station that I went to work on, doing Bubbling Under, which was at 4 o'clock on a Sunday before the network chart. So there you are, novice introducing david jensen and there was a massive gulf in the in the insight in the perception of what was achievable you know from university radio extra to 
to where you were. And obviously I did go on to work on Devonair, but I don't understand why you didn't do more on that radio station, except to think that it really was a closed shop, old school. I don't know if you wanted to do more or if there were barriers, but you really only ever did one or two shows a week. And then, of course, something which was a weigh-in for me, AA Roadwatch, which was a provider of travel news to the local radio stations, which Andy and I both did with the lovely um, Selena Ross and the late Alison Sixsmith. And suddenly that gave us a platform to be on. Oh, wow. These station names, Andy. Orchard FM, Pirate FM, BBC Radio Cornwall, Devon Air, BBC Radio Devon, and maybe some others that I've since since forgotten. But it, did you have any aspirations with an English degree in mind what you would want to be, what you would want to do? There's no recorded overnight sustaining service. So quite a bit of what I did was the old mumbling around midnight, the midnight till 6am shift, when there's just you, a pile of vinyl, a creaking, probably haunted studio. It's on St David's Hill. It's not studios anymore. It's now flats. So that's, that's how I got into it. It feels now to me like I was there a lot longer than two years, but that's how long I was there. But as I say, gosh, it takes a long time to get a broadcast gig on radio. And I think you're absolutely right. I was lucky. I got onto the local, as it was then, commercial radio station, which did all those things that perhaps commercial radio doesn't do now, which is fully local output, and even had a newsroom with about six people in yeah. it reporting local news. So, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I was blessed to do that for the brief couple of years I was there. Look, I mean, it didn't quite happen for you, did it? It didn't, um, I suppose, in those terms. But I can't say that I was too bothered about that. I don't remember the exact mechanism by which I came to end my time with, with Devonair. It, it's true to say that I was only ever freelance there, and for whatever reason, I wasn't getting the gigs. But there is a thread. There's a constant thread. And you mentioned this uh, earlier in the podcast about falling into things. And I've generally always done that. Career progression, don't have it. Never heard of it. Left, never left a job voluntarily uh, in, in my life. And what happened was that because I was doing, I did more than one show a week, actually, to be honest. I mean, the, the, the overnight stints were like Monday to Friday. So I was doing quite a bit of that. And I was also on a Saturday doing a little half-hour documentary-based program. You don't get that uh, in, in local radio much anymore, about local what's-ons, film, theatre, etc., etc. That led me into being in regular contact with the press officer at the Northcott Theatre, who I knew would always be able to get, when I was in the right in it and had not planned in advance quite enough, she could always get me an actor or a director to interview for that what's on the show. I forget what it was called now. So then, of course, I had a link to the Northcott Theatre and the press officer there, Trish King, she went on maternity leave. They were looking for someone to fill in. Andy, would you like to do this for nine months? Because the work was drying up at Devonair and this was a permanent, if, if only short-term contract, I said, yes, I'll have a crack at that. Went off, nine months, press officer at the Northcott Theatre, loved the environment of a, a professional working repertoire trish king came back i went away thought nothing more of it she went away again to get a better job and uh, this has never happened to me ever again the, the theater actually got back in touch with me because i was doing all bits and bobs and things and i can't remember that's too long ago to to you know living hand to mouth sort of thing whatever and said do you want to come back and take this role on permanently and there i was then from 1990 or thereabouts onwards 18 years at the northcott theater as wow. variously press officer, marketing manager, etc. It was different job titles, same role for 18 years. And that says a lot about an environment where you stay because you love it. Wow. And aside, when, when you turned up at Exeter University from Essex? Definitely Essex, God's own country, yeah. Yeah. What, did you have any aspirations with an English degree in mind? What you would want to be what you would want to do i think in in my head as as a what would i have been by then a 19 year old or something i mean my i mean this is 
I think this podcast is good at unpicking, you know, sliding doors. They're not sliding doors, is it? Yeah, yeah that thing. Because yeah. if you make one choice, you your life goes one way. You make a choice, it goes another. First time I did my A levels. I don't know what they call them now, kids. A-level. I did very bad. I did. I didn't do as well as I could. Yeah, they still call them that. Fantastic. I didn't do as well as I could. I got an E in my geography, and that didn't get me into my first choice university. Which so was? I no idea. I can't remember now. I haven't. I honestly, it's Tony. It's it's what is it? Forty years ago. <laughs> it's a lot of decades. As the great Sam Goldwyn once said, we've all passed a lot of water since then. <laughs> so I mean, so I spent an abortive two weeks in Sheffield at Sheffield Poly, as it was then. Sheffield, I can say, back in the eighties, and that would have been like eighty to eighty-four. I liked very much, but the course turned out to be not a bookish English course. But we had to do creative stuff. And it got to the point where they're saying, now you have to write a poem. And I'm like, I don't, I no, really, seriously, I'm not that artistic. So I dipped out, spent a year at home, retook the geography, got an E again. <laughs> but for some reason, but for some reason, Exeter contacted me and said, you're in. <laughs> and, and so I ended up in Exeter. That, I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? So if I had any ambitions to do anything uh, with, with, with an English literature degree, because the thing about English literature is it's not, you have to know a broad range of things to do literature. You need to know philosophy, poetry, history, geography. It all comes into literature. It's not just about the writing. Would to be perhaps something in journalism or something. That's when we're not talking about URE, but that's where in the second half of year one, URE took over and I began to have aspirations in the broadcasting world or, or vague aspirations in that um while i was there i did go um for an interview at the bbc for the radio sound operations position um, but that was clearly far far too technical for a luddite like me but it has led on to other things so for instance it did go to devonair devonair led on to the theater and don't forget that in all this time from the late 80s early 90s up through the 2000s i still also even if i wasn't broke um i was still djing for the Tim Arnold Roadshow at the aforementioned dreadful weddings uh, in the middle of nowhere when you're getting out at two o'clock in the morning, it's pitch dark, and it's pouring with rain and you wonder why you're there doing nightmarish gigs, actually quite a nice wedding, but in, in places like the ruined Blobby Land, which had collapsed, I still, these nightmarish visions of broken fiberglass Mr. Blobbies in the undercoats we carried the kit in. But I was also still DJing down on the quayside at by then what had become warehouse and boxes so warehouse and boxes when it was in the old place at the bottom of the cold hill on exodus historic quayside go for a day it's lovely then it moved across to a much bigger premises also called warehouse and boxes now gone that's now a st hostel brewery big big super mega pub and in my latter djing career i got away from just you know playing records one after the other for weddings and doing the 80s night down at the warehouse on the quayside which was massive and i actually got eventually ended up doing some nice actual house mixing beat matching and all that sort of thing proper proper djing if you like off vinyl playing house music in the timepiece and that to me was the pinnacle of, of where i'd got to my good friend rich in this part of the world very good funk and soul dj it put me into the company of those sort of djs who played the music they wanted to uh, not what the crowd asked them to and got away with it and, and entertained people at one point he came up to me in the balcony bar at tidepiece and said honey you're actually mixing and that was the for my djing out life that was the pinnacle for me i really enjoyed those times i don't do it anymore it's it's just that that phase of my life has has mm. finished now but more opportunities come up a few years ago do you know what? I'd rather play the music I want to and not got, not get paid for it. So now I do community radio. It's quite interesting that, very interesting, because I don't want to talk about me, but I looked up to you in a strange kind of way that you would never know. <laughs> um, because you'd obviously been on the university radio station and were doing these things. And I... I could never understand the idea of being a club DJ. And I think mm. knowing you a little bit, I actually think that you are a broadcaster that never really 
did all the broadcasting things that you were capable of. I never, I think that that part of you is unexplored and unfulfilled. But there you were, as you say, you know, a student and DJing and mm -hmm. the warehouse and boxes thing. Well, you know, I think there are many people that don't know who you are, but certainly were in your DNA presence. And <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Was it Thursday nights at the warehouse? Am I making that up or, or not? Yeah, that, those, those are the really monster ones. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's interesting what you say about not not wanting to do, you know, in the, in the DJ parlance of playing out, of, of actually, you know, playing as, as all of my career has been. Uh, it's all been off vinyl or... Uh, latterly cds or something but certainly not from the laptop and all that sort of thing that i i stopped long before that era of laptop g thing came in but if you looked at me as a, as a skinny uh, uh say back in Malden in essex which is where i come from when i was at school in Malden where i grew up nobody would have believed least of all myself that within a few years not very many years of leaving that much smaller town than exeter i would be in one of the biggest nightclubs in Exeter, doing an 80s revival night. Still in love with the X. If I may, and this is where the name Dave Hills comes in again, and by that point, he'd become manager of, he'd become general manager of those nightclubs. And he decided uh, with great foresight and very early on, before anybody else had an idea to do it, to do an 80s revival night in the 90s. Normally, you wait a couple of decades before you do revival nights. He decided not to. They were massively, massively popular with the student body. They were massively popular with people from in town as well. That was nice about them. You got a mix of people in there. For instance, there was a there was a copper uh, nicknamed Diesel, and he had the university beat. And he, he he came down to eighties night regularly because he loved the vibe and the feel of the music. And in fact, I DJ'd his his wedding disco in Zeal Monocorum. These these connections that are coming back to me as i think about <laughs> but if, if you can picture the scene of the warehouse was a is exactly what it sounded like a cavernous probably i don't know 18th century bonded warehouse that had a big bar at the back a huge open space for a dance floor and a podium where the dj stood and played the records and lights hanging and all that sort of thing it was a big capacity i won't say that it was always always over capacity on a thursday night but between you and me, it was always over capacity. So <laughs> if you can imagine the sheer joy, and it, it, it sounds cheesy now, but I got a lot of fun out of this. So if you know how to DJ out, and it's, you know, if you know which, basically DJing is putting one record on after the other. That's it. There's no particular skill to it. You have to know how to build a mood. I felt I could. If you've got them where you want them by the end of the night and you stick on something I don't know, let's say radio gaga right by queen if you've got an audience of a thousand of them in front of you and they're having a really good time and they start to do all the sounds all the motions that were in the video as one and having a cracking time you think you know this isn't a bad way to earn a few quid so yeah so so the playing out was it's not broadcasting but it's still knowing kind of what you do you can't be a musical evangelist <laughs> I think you will say that's very kind of you, but I still see you as a broadcaster and not as a nightclub vendor of tunes. And yet you <laughs> you made your, your money and did your work through that because radio, radio just didn't mm. really come good for you. But, you know, you were a terrific broadcaster. And I can still picture you as – I can picture you at the warehouse – and you have to tell me what boxes was, by the way. Um, but I can mm. see you there with a pint of something black. I don't know what it was. And a fag. And playing the tunes. Oh, and, oh, those were the days, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I don't... Yeah. To this day, I still don't think that's Andy. I think that's Andy making a living. But I think you are a broadcaster. But maybe I'm, I've got all this wrong. But um, the thing about the 80s there is that if you were to go you know, on a stage now and go, right, so it's 2023, let's play the hits of yeah. 2018. I arrived in Exeter in 89, and there was an 80s night on a Thursday, 
and you're playing the hits of 83, 84 and all that, it's only four or five years past. It's not mm. a gulf of musical time. It, it's Whilst it was brilliant, it's not a logical thing to do. And who would, crikey, who would um, set up a DJ night now going back five years? But that thing, I mean, I don't even know what happened at the warehouse and boxes on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but I think it was Thursday. I think it was Thursday. And hmm. 80s night, 80s night, 80s yeah. night. But we were still in the bloody 80s when I arrived at Exeter. <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, I think I think what you're you're conflating there is the fact that when you arrived at Exeter in the 1980s, only just, by the way, yeah. um, you young shaver, you. That's because they were still playing music from the 80s because it was the 80s. The 80s revival night came later in the 90s, but that's that's by the by. But um, just to let you know, Warehouse was the big cavernous the main the main club sort of thing. Boxes in both iterations of the club was the smaller, grittier damper sweatier slightly smellier part of the club where you would have you, you would have the uh, indie nights stuff like that going on and the small smaller functions or or what have you and actually for many many years as well alan quick who still is chief is editor chief photographer chief feature writer chief letters editor probably takes the advertising as well for the credit and country courier used to do a really good gay night in there as well, which was, was beloved of thousands of people. And that was always in boxes as well, and slightly more niche sort of stuff that they did in there. Warehouse was for the, the big nights and the general, you know, sat Friday, Saturday evening stuff. Boxes was the, was the smaller venue attached to each of the two club locations. So when you were a student at Exeter, where did you go? Mm. Oh, nowhere that's still open now. I would, <laughs> I would go to... Uh, I think, I can't remember exactly whether it was in 85, 88, but it might have still been called Tiffany's and Boogie's then. It might have been there. But we certainly went to Warehouse and Boxes if we went on a night out. Where I live now is in a place called Bonhay Road, which runs alongside the river um, and is very near to the to the uh, St. David's train station, main train station for Exeter. So, but what you would have then, and I think this is a, arguably the definition of the culture of, 85 to 88 and, and for many years either side of that the students was a pub culture not a club culture so i would quite often join people coming from the the far the, the far end of the campus down Duryard way and you would make your way into town following the railway track the first place you got to was the red cow inn yeah. run by jackie <laughs> beloved of the the sporting types the rugby players because she brought to know crapulence from them they could get larry but she'd have a word and chuck them out if they got to larry and they loved her as well that typical typical pub thing that closed down some years ago went to management company they didn't care sold it off let it go to rack and ruin it collapsed it was pulled down redeveloped into a brand new building which even now stands empty so that's gone they did have george's food and drink factory lastly the jolly porter and you could work your way up into town through a series of pubs all of which i have to tell you tony have gone yeah. Nada, Rianne, gone. Uh, shut down, closed down, knocked down, what have you. Um, and I suppose, any, uh, where else would we go? Where did I first, well, I first remember counting Mr. Hills was in a nightclub called the Riverside, which is the St. Thomas side of the city. Latterly, over the years, it's been a Laser Quest building. It's now um, a uh, building for a Christian association. But it used to be the Riverside nightclub. remember going in there. Uh, we would go into town, uh, the Black Horse. I, I don't think I left the Black Horse for three years, to be honest. <laughs> uh, that was a favourite. And even as also as well, this is this is an odd one because it's just been refurbished and reopened. There's a pub in the high street called the Turk's Head. And we were told, we were told by wise heads at the university to never go in the Turk's Head because we get our teeth kicked in. <laughs> um, but I, Ken Hills is there. Well, we, we would go in there for a drink because, as he quite rightly pointed out, if we didn't behave like students, like really obnoxious, you know, then nobody cared. And actually, it was a very decent boozer. Uh, it has become one again. Uh, for many years, it was like it was like a pretzel or something like that. So, yeah, uh, any number of drinking establishments, you know, in the town. But it had more nightclubs. Timepiece as well, I would go to as well. Timepiece, timepiece when it was proper timepiece. 
in a smaller building near to where it is now. No matter how drunk you got, you couldn't fall over because your shoes were stuck to the carpet. Wow. So old proper time piece as well. So, yeah. In, in a fa you know, a fairly loose, staggering distance of the university, basically, yeah. I can only remember going to the warehouse. I can remember reading out things for the timepiece and maybe a couple of other places. I do remember once going to the warehouse and I think I had three pints of Fosters. I'd come back from my year abroad. Mm -hmm. I believe Dave Hills had put something in my drink and I wandered, ah. I wandered back to La Frauda. And in that student diet that you have, I threw up several mm -hmm. jacket potatoes uh, on the steps of my then girlfriend's floor. But it's amazing what three pints would do to you back then. But it's it's strange that the myth, the the words, the Chinese whispers create the legend of a Thursday night at the warehouse. And, yeah, I don't recall going there. So my second year is abroad. I don't recall going there in my third or fourth year. My fourth year, I was obviously working on the radio. But I suppose the, the way of looking at this is that if you were an extra university student around my time, 89, 93, and you didn't go there once, jeez, what the hell were you doing? I suppose that leads us on to... The Northcott Theatre. You went to work at the Northcott Theatre, and that's that's a proper job, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, 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 yeah, totally, it was, and 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 a fascinating one as well. Because when we, when you talked to me about about doing this, thank you again, by the way. Uh, you sort of talked about highlights and so forth. But the whole eighteen years, really, I mean, was something of a highlight because what you need to remember about the the Northcott Theatre when I was working there is that it was what you would call a regional producing theatre or a regional repertory theatre. So what that means is that all the actors we ever employed were professional actors, but they're jobbing actors. They're the ones who, they're not famous particularly, but all of them were exceptional in their own right. And what you would do is you would, the director, whoever it was at the time, would pull together a company of them, I don't know, a dozen or so, maybe fewer, maybe, maybe more, with those would do a series of shows across three months, six months, whatever it is. And that's your repertory company. That's how it used to be. But because it was a producing theatre, what it so I saw all that side of it. Uh, but what I was also seeing, because it had within it, well, scattered around on campus in various places, but also within the fabric of the building, it had those departments you expect to see in a professional theatre. It had very talented people who made props. It had incredibly talented people who made costumes. It had some terrific people who built the scenery one of whom is a chap called Mike Parr, a.k.a. Um, Gary Kane of Gary Kane and the Tornadoes back in the 60s. Kevin Parr, otherwise known, taking his dad's stage name as Kevin Kane, um, who I'm sure you came across in your perambulations in local radio. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, I, I, you know, it's a small world, but you wouldn't want to paint it, but it really, it really is. <laughs> and I think the highlights from, from my time at the theatre were just being part of that fabric of a machine a very, very human family that put together all these amazing shows. Famous people, we had a couple in shows, but they didn't really impinge on us at all. That wasn't the important thing. Did we, did we do stuff that cost an awful lot of money that we had to make back by doing some rubbish at Christmas? Yes, we did. For, <laughs> for seven years, for seven years, the theatre came out and did an open-air Shakespeare production in the grounds behind the library next to city centre in Northern Hay Gardens in the moat of the old Rougemont Castle. A tremendous achievement. Fantastic, but a complete lost leader. But we did it because they were creative people and they could do that. The actors in it, not famous, but all professional. It's important that people understand that. But also the, the other highlights were some of the smaller things we did. We had a studio theatre space in the St Thomas side of the city. We did little little shows there, one-handers, two-handers, stuff that wouldn't really, even we couldn't put on the main stage. And one of my favourites of those was two good friends of ours, a guy called Dave Stern and Steve as well, Steve Bennett, two local actors. Oh, was, uh, actually, Dave Stern was not country, Steve Bennett is local boy. They did a two-man version of The Man Who Would Be King, an epic, sprawling, Kipling tale 
which demands a cast of thousands. They did it with two people and a few props. And you know what? Probably the best piece of theatre I've ever seen. It was, and that's why I was there for 18 years, because you don't leave an environment like that. It's never going to pay the rent very much. It pays the rent, but it's, you know, working in theatre, you're never going to get rich. But um, no, it's good. It's good. And the reason I left there was I wasn't going to, but uh, I, was, I was made redundant by PowerPoint. So there you go, really. I could explain that if you want to, but, you know, it's why I have a deep loathing of PowerPoint even to this day. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, go on. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, firstly, just digesting everything you said there. I mean, you talk about Kevin Parr, obviously Kevin Kane, a good friend of mine. And local legend. A local legend yeah. in that kind of local disc jockey kind of way. But, I mean, a love, love, oh, yeah. lovely, lovely Man, but I never even knew that. I never knew that. And I've known Kevin for 30 odd years and I never even knew that. But, you know, we're in an era, aren't we, where you are made redundant by text, WhatsApp, yeah. PowerPoint, yeah, yeah. and COVID and all exactly. that. And, well, go on. <laughs> well, yeah, no. So this was 2009. I mean, you know, as, I, as I've uh, said, I mean, the Northcott Theatre was, was, was never, it had 433 seats. And I think it's, I think it's got, it's been expanded slightly in past decades to just under 500. That's not enough. Even if you sell every seat at top price, it's not enough. So you had to get subsidies. So it's a subsidised regional producing theatre. So we had a new broom come in, a new, a new um, director, manager, whatever they're called. Uh, and they, they wanted to make some changes. And, and initially, that was all good. So we were talking to this person. It was all going very well and being listened to. And then the, the whole uh, company was summoned into a, into a big room on campus. And uh, there, was a, there was a presentation. There was a PowerPoint presentation, Death by PowerPoint, which had, like, Venn diagrams on it and um, charts and graphs and things like that. And then a slide came up showing one of those upside-down pyramids, you know, that shows, you know, this the boss at the top and then all the spurs that come off saying who works there. And it was like, oh, and this is this is how we're arranged at the moment. Okay, right, yes, I can see you. That's fine. And I'll uh, put the next slide up, which shows how the staffing will be arranged going forward. I think that's the first time I heard the phrase "going forward" as well. And I also have a loathing of people who say that. Um, so uh, ping with the um, uh, remote control. Up comes the next slide, and I'll and where <laughs> I remember what they said was, I'll "Just leave you to digest that for a while while we leave the room." I swear, Tony, to God, that's what happened. And we're all looking at this organi this, this uh, organisational chart thing, going, oh, yes, that's logical. Oh, hang on a minute. I'm not on it. So a third of the staff were made redundant. 2009, this was. And if, I, if I'd had the presence of mind, because I know how these, because I've been in theatre for 18 years now, and I know how it works, what I should have done was written a, uh, what do you call it, a, um, a prediction on a piece of paper, put it in a sealed envelope, given it to the editor of the local paper, the Express and Echo, and said, open that in a year. And what it would have said on the paper would have been, the theatre will go bankrupt within a year under this new regime. And that's exactly what happened to it. But, you know, hindsight, 2020, always. So as far as I'm aware, the Northcott is not now running in that, that old-style model, which is what was so fascinating to all of us that weren't there. Um, but it's still, I think, I think it still some, produces some shows in-house. I'm not sure. Because to be quite honest with you, I haven't set foot in the place more than twice. I went for a TED talk about five years ago, something else, since 2009, because I just don't want to. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's 18 a chunk of my life, and I, I don't want to revisit that, you know. What's interesting there, though, is, and you must have had some awareness of this, but how many students set foot in the Northcott where they are at Exeter University. And now I can't recall, and there there probably are some exceptions, but hmm. I can't recall hmm. as a student going to the Northcott Theatre, and that must be – well, I'll, I'll give you a, a parallel. I live now in a place called Broughton Store in Lancashire where there's a ski slope but 80% of the customers come from outside yeah. the area in Lancashire to go to the ski slope and when you say to people you yeah. live in Rotten Store nobody's ever heard of it and in a way that's good but the only <laughs> thing they've ever heard of is the ski slope really it is a massive failing and you must have a massive understanding of this but if 
Exeter University students are not going to the Northcott Theatre. There's something fundamentally wrong mm. there, isn't there, in the in the sort of business plan? There must have been something that you you would have addressed. No, not not <laughs> no, completely, utterly wrong. I'm afraid, my friend, because how many university students or people of that age, young people of that age, go to the theatre anyway? There's a thing about it's my own personal theory, but how do you get a young person to go to the theatre when there's so much other stuff that could be? Doing? How do you get a young person to go to the theatre? It is incredibly easy to get young people to go to the theatre. What you do is you wait until they stop being young and they've done the university thing and had all the excitement. You wait until they have met the person of their dreams, married, had children. The children have left the house. The mortgage is paid off. And then they go to the theatre. And that's how you get a young person to go to the theatre. A fundamental misunderstanding that everybody always had about the Northcott Theatre was that it was specifically built as the city's theatre. It's not a university theatre. It is now. But in 1967, when it opened, it happens to be on the, it happened to be built on the university campus because the campus, university at the time, were young, thrusting, had some land. Build your theatre here because we want that prestige. But it was never designed to be run as a theatre just for students. Young people, by and large, Tony, they don't go to the theatre. There's too much other stuff to do. So actually, we did all right. And when did they come to the theatre? I'll tell you when they came to the theatre. They came to the theatre when the university, because we always had a, a season where we had amateur productions in, some fantastically typical Andram societies from in town which were everything you'd expect them to be, and also the student societies. I'll mention one, one famous person. I was still there when uh, a chap called Will Young appeared in, yeah. uh, I can't remember what the show was now, in a musical. Yeah, you know all of that. So, yeah, so when, we, when the student societies, you know, part of the deal was we let the, the amateur companies come in and use these fantastic professional facilities, when they were there, Flocks of students came to see the theatre, but no, they, they, you know, they had as much opportunity to come to theatre as anybody else from, from the, the town of Exeter and the surrounding countryside. But that's just not what young people do. So, no, it wasn't a failing at all. So a standout moment from the Northcott Theatre? He said. He said. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of, <laughs> I've already sort of touched on the standout moments. I, I think one of the, the, that we have to take what we did and, and, and transplanted to the city centre for about seven years or so. We did what was called Shakespeare in the Gardens. It was probably Midsummer Night's Dreams, the most magical thing you can think of to do there. The performance area was the grass and tree-lined moat, which is behind Exeter Library. It's the old moat, dry moat surrounding Rishmore Castle. In order to accommodate enough audience on the site to make it pay, we had to build an auditorium from scratch every year. That was done by a local scaffolding company. And funnily enough, young Matt, and I insist on calling him young Matt now, even though he's seven foot tall, 16 feet wide, built like a brick outhouse. Young Matt, who used to be my light jock down at the warehouse, is now a managing director of the scaffolding company that used to build our auditorium from scratch every year. That was a piece of work. I was very proud of that, and people absolutely loved it. And as I say, some of the, the smaller things as well that we did, and... And seriously, I'll go back to that little two-hander of The Man Who Would Be King, which showed what theatre could do, yeah, with, with, with minimal props, no real costume changes. You could tell a story with a cast of thousands. So it's moments like that that really, you know, the whole theatre thing absolutely did it for me. Just tiny moments stand out in my head. It's like we did, uh, I can't remember what this is, it's, it's a play set, with a, it's a set on a on the outskirts of a cricket ground and the cricket's got the steps of a cricket pavilion just the props that were done for that so we keep having to buy cress every night for the the, the tea scene because cricketers have to have food so the props department going all right we'll make you some fake cress just the detail that went into this puddle of fake cress daft stuff like that but it was joyous because it, the excitement of seeing the rehearsals come together of getting to the technical rehearsals, I always watched a bit of that, the dress run-through, the palpable excitement backstage as well as in front. That happened multiple times for me. It's very difficult to pick out one highlight. And Andy, you're still in Exeter now, which is always an interesting scenario 
people that don't leave the <laughs> university town. Just tell everybody what you do yeah. and why you're still there. I'm still there because, as we touched on earlier, there was a, there was a continuity. So, came to university, did university radio, met Dave Hills. He was roading for Tim Arnold. Started roading for Tim Arnold. Kept doing that for about 15 years. So there's a there's an earner there, some money on the side from that. From the Tim Arnold connection, did some work at Devonair. Ended up DJing in nightclubs. So there was even before I left university. I had some roots here, if you will. Devonair, doing the, the What's On show. Met the person at Northcott, ended up with their job, stayed at the Northcott, met my partner at the Northcott. There we go. So I might have gone after two years. <laughs> I might have gone. That would be that, that two or three years after university, once, once the, the work at um, Devonair dried up, and the nine months at the theatre had ended, that might have been the point at which I left Exeter. But I didn't. Uh, and, and, and that's why I'm still here. Also, um, it's a lot, don't get me wrong, my, where I come from in, in Essex, Malden, is a beautiful old market town surrounded by redevelopment now. But the central part of it is nice. It's famous for several things. You should go down if you can. Great collection of Thames, working Thames barges on the quayside by the river famous for its uh, salt its sea salt which you will find in the best chefs cupboards and shops all around the world molden sea salt and of course the event that draws a japanese tv crew every year the molden mud race which is held in the depths of january where local idiots run across the mud laden river blackwater from one side to the other low tide and then back again without being sucked down but the reason i'm still that so my partner is here and i live here but exeter is a good town yeah it's been good to me if you think about it over the years it's never let me down employment wise i did work in plymouth for 18 months for a pr company down there but no it's and i think some of the buzz still exists because when i came from Malden, which is a small town when i came to exeter this is difficult for some for glittering urbanites like you to understand <laughs> is that Exeter was a city as opposed to a town. Yeah, it was bigger. I know now that it's more like a village in the way it works. I mean, you can see all the connections I've touched upon with people I know from various parts of my life. But it's a nice place to be. It's a good place to be. Now, uh, for the last eight years or so, still, still in a comms role. I've always been doing that. I work for Devon and Cornwall Police in what you would call corporate communication. So basically media relations, planning campaigns for the public, say, like, you know, drink drive campaigns, be they social media or posters or whatever, all that stuff that communicates with the public, but also there's an element of internal communications. We need our officers to know this, that, and the other. How's the best way to get this information to them? Can you help us with a, you know, get, get something done that's going to help them understand all this? And it has been, compared even to the theatre, where I was for 18 years, probably one of the most rewarding jobs I've ever had. And that's even now when policing nationwide is in a bit of a state because everybody hates the police sort of thing because of things that tend to happen outside our force it must be said but you know it's a glorious place to be and about 15 years ago having never thought i'd do it again this uh, a mad scotsman set up a fantastic music festival next called the vibraphonic music festival and part of that it ran about three or four years part of that was a, a limitations edition just for a month, like they do at Cow's Week, you know, that sort of thing. And I thought, I'll have a, I'll have a pop at that. I'll have a go. It's been ages. Why don't we? What's, what I loved about it, Tony, was that by that point, I knew all these really good local DJs, the ones that did the funk, the soul, the house music, the mixing, the scratching. They were really good. They decided to have a go as well. It was fantastic to watch them go into this little ad hoc radio studio we had in the bowels of the local arts centre. And realised that suddenly they were playing music, but they would have to say something <laughs> as opposed to being up on the podium and just, you know, dropping massive beats on the audience to whip them into a frenzy. They suddenly realised, oh, my God, now we have to talk. And I have said that most of them took to it like, like ducks to water. And I, and I made some very good friends there as well. And 15 years down the line, I hope that it says something about the station is that it's renewed twice. I think it's, it's licensed to broadcast as a community station has been renewed. And 
I'm I'm very proud to be a part of it. Albeit that I I'm not incredibly active, and I only do every other Saturday lunchtime. But to me, you know, so that's not the reason why I stayed here. But it's a nice thing to be able to do still. I can broadcast. I can ramble on as I'm doing now within reason, and I can play the music that I think people want to listen to. And and I don't think I could do that if I was prescribed by an algorithm or a music or a management plan or a marketing plan that said, no, you need to be playing this record at this time of day because that's what we, the algorithm tells us that the audience clicks on their web more when you play this music at this time. I couldn't do it. I was approached by a local commercial station years ago, actually. I won't say who. <laughs> Andy, no, 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 no. We really like what you do on, on Phonic FM. Yeah. Oh, well, that's okay. Yeah. We'd like you to come and do it for us. Oh, fantastic. Right. Great. Okay. Um, um, so, yeah. And then I thought, that's very kind of you to say. And then the conversation went, obviously, we'd have to change a few things, like, you know, what you're saying and um, the music you're playing. <laughs> so, so, right. So, yeah, you like what I'm doing on Funny Kevin, you don't want me to do okay, fine. Um, what's the money like? Oh no, we can't pay you. No. I'll I'll keep oh, doing radio, thank you very much for no money. <laughs> well, when I was in my final year at Exeter doing seven to midnight on Devon Air and Plymouth Sound, both stations, you've probably got a better idea than anybody of what I was getting paid. Would you like to suggest for a five-hour show what the fee was? <laughs> so that was that was Devon Air, yeah. Yeah. What so year? ninety ninety-one seven to midnight, Devon Air and Plymouth Sound. The radio station just been acquired by the GWR Group, so big investment. Uh, yeah. What do you think I got? Seven to midnight. I don't know. You probably got about twenty-five quid. 25 quid is the correct answer, Andy Sinclair. Thank you very much. <laughs> Indeed. So, wow, what, what a journey there from English to the radio to the warehouse and boxes to the Northcott Theatre. And next time, food and drink, pubs and grubs around Exeter. And as we always say, times of joy and times of sorrow will always see it through. I don't care what comes tomorrow. We can face it together like old friends do. For more on this podcast, head over to secretsofaghostwriter.com. Still in Love with the X is a horny media and publishing production. <laughs>